0: Macworld podcast number 311 for July 18th, 2012. Welcome to another Mackerel podcast sponsored by Hover.com. Domain names made simple. I'm Chris Breen. In a podcast where you tend to focus on current Apple events, this would be what we call a slow news week. Mountain Lion is coming soon, but we can't talk about it in detail because those of us who've used the developer releases are under non-disclosure agreement, so we can't discuss specifics. iOS 6, the third developer release of which was released yesterday, is likewise off-limits for discussion because of its NDA. Apple's done its summer Mac releases in the form of the Retina Display MacBook Pro, updated MacBook Airs, and only very slightly updated Mac Pros, And it's extremely unlikely that we're going to see new hardware, and that would be iMacs, iPhones, and iPod Touches until this fall. So in terms of big Apple announcements, crickets. And that presents a unique problem for this week's podcast. With nothing much going on, what do you talk about? Well, what do you do at work when there's nothing much going on? And I mean, other than surf the web. I don't know about you, but I try to put my work life in order by taking care of the little things. Clearing out my inbox, finishing off those nagging little projects that you never seem to get around to, and reorganizing my workspace. So with that in mind, this episode of the World Podcast is devoted to the little things. It's a barely apologetic hodgepodge of stuff. A couple of opinions, some tips, and a few recommendations. We'll start with an opinion. The rumor du jour is the iPad Mini. This would be a 7-inch iPad that will be thin, more portable than its larger sibling, and cost far less than the iPad we know today. It's been fodder for rumor sites for months, but now even the heavy mainstream hitters like the New York Times are jumping into the pool, swearing that such a device is coming, and it's coming reasonably soon. I read through the Times piece, and its list of reasons for the thing's existence makes sense, as follows. Apple would like to suck up every bit of gravy in the tablet market, and that means the low-end currently occupied by the Kindle Fire and the new Google Nexus 7. A 7-inch tablet is arguably a better device for reading as it's lighter and more portable, meaning that you can take it more places and your arms aren't ready to fall off after holding the thing for half an hour. Apple could improve its touchscreen sensors so that even on a 7-inch device, you'd be far more likely to tap what you intended to rather than an object nearby. And the guy who objected most strenuously to a 7-inch tablet, and that would be Steve Jobs, is no longer around to stand in the way of such a device. Add to this that people like John Gruber of Daring Fireball have embraced the practicality of a 7-inch iPad, whether because of the clamor that it's a reasonable idea or because he knows something the rest of us don't, and you have to start taking the possibility of such a thing a little more seriously. So what about it? Does it make sense? To start with, Let's assume that such a thing would be priced at about 200 bucks, just like the Google Nexus and Kindle Fire. And that would be for an entry-level Wi-Fi-only model with, say, 8 or 16 gigabytes of storage. Then, possibly, another model with more storage for, say, $250. With full iOS capability and access to the iTunes Store, the App Store, and the iBook Store, the thing would be very tempting to a lot of people who've chosen either to do without a tablet altogether or purchase an iPod Touch. I honestly don't see how any other company could compete, so yes, Apple could own that space. But what about the iPod Touch? Currently the low-end 8 gigabyte model goes for that same $200. Does Apple continue to sell it, perhaps bumping it up to 16 gigabytes for those who want a device that slips easily into a pocket, or does a 7-inch tablet completely kill the touch because the vast majority of people want the bigger screen? I think both devices could exist but I don't see them priced the same way. Either the touch goes down in price to $150 or the iPad mini goes up to $250 for the base model, for example. Apple is about the appearance of simplicity and that applies to its pricing as well. But let's back up a second. Some of the speculation about an iPad mini comes from the comparison to the original traditional iPod line. Apple went for the high-end with the classic iPod, the one that had a hard drive in it, the middle ground with the iPod Mini and iPod Nano, and the low-end with the iPod Shuffle. The thinking is that Apple would mimic this strategy with the iPad. But we're really talking about apples and oranges. One reason that Apple could do this is because each device had different component needs. You could produce a $49 iPad because the parts that went into it were dirt cheap. But a wireless touchscreen device is a different matter. There's only so low you can go, even if you've tied up every component supplier in Asia. Apple could deliver an iPad at $200 or $250, but would it be willing to? It's no secret that the company likes its healthy profit margins, and it's keen on producing quality gear. Is it willing to sacrifice one or both simply for the right to say that it's completely son up the tablet market? In the case of the Ultrabook from a couple of years ago, the answer was a resounding no. Apple could have produced a slim and cheap laptop, but it chose not to. Instead, it made a slim, elegant, and now powerful mid-priced laptop. If Apple chooses to make a 7-inch iPad, I'm thinking that's the line it takes. Price it at $100 more than something like the Nexus 7, but make it beautiful and deliver a clear message that this is a full-featured, media-centric tablet, rather than one hobbled to meet a low price point. We'll see. I'm still not entirely sold on the idea of a 7-inch iPad. More people are supportive of the idea, but I wonder if that's because it seems like Apple's likely to make one. And let's face it, in the pundit business, it's more fun to be right than wrong. About the Nexus 7. Speaking of the Nexus 7, I received mine today and have spent about an hour with it. Now you can't, or at least you shouldn't, review something you've had your hands on for so little time. But there's nothing stopping me from issuing a few first impressions. First, and probably most important to our listeners, it's not an iPad. The 7-inch size is handy and perfectly fine for reading books, watching videos, and listening to music, but it's cramped in other ways. Typing, for example. It's kind of a pain as the virtual keys are quite close together. And while you get a full-blown web browser in the form of the Chrome app, using it requires a fair amount of pinching and zooming. Now, I also have the Kindle Fire, and as much as I'd like to compare the Nexus to an iPad, I keep coming back to the Fire as a way of comparison. The Nexus is far more responsive than the Kindle, and unlike the Kindle, which is largely a vehicle for consuming Amazon content, the Nexus feels more like a real tablet. Sure, there are plenty of hooks into Google Play content, and that'd be movies, books, magazines, and music, but the interface doesn't seem entirely designed to push you to Google Play. Now, Google services is another matter entirely. If the focus of your digital life is Gmail, Google Earth, Google Plus, Chrome, YouTube, Google Messenger, and Google Maps, you're going to find a nexus darn useful. Just navigate to the app sheet, and you'll find a lot of Google properties that are easily accessed and nicely laid out. It also has the advantage that it has access to the real Android market, whereas apps for the Google Fire have to be delivered through Amazon, which doesn't have as broad a selection of apps. Also, the bundled apps on the Nexus are more useful for a broader scope of tasks. For example, I find it easier to browse contacts and calendars and send and receive email on the Nexus than on the Fire. The Maps app is slick, and having navigation built in is very cool, though I'll have to see how this works in practice rather than from in front of my desk. The build quality is solid, and the interface is easy to navigate, but it's not as elegant as an iPad. That said, I think Google will probably sell a ton of these things. They're affordable and capable. another tip. I mentioned this in a recent Mac 911 entry, but it's worth repeating here if you've missed it. Mountain Lion is coming soon, and with it, a feature called AirPlay Mirroring. This allows you to wirelessly mirror what's on your Mac's display to a TV connected to an Apple TV 2 or Apple TV 3, and that would be the small black box Apple TVs rather than the bulkier silver one that could also serve as a hot plate. However, a few people are likely to scream when they discover that while they can install Mountain Lion on their Macs, they can't take advantage of airplane mirroring. Because specifically, you need an iMac, and that would be a mid-2011 or newer model, a Mac Mini, and that's mid-2011 or newer, MacBook Air, again, mid-2011 or newer, or a MacBook Pro, and that would be early 2011 or newer. So if you have one of these models that was made in 2010, you're out of luck. Apple hasn't explained why you need this newer hardware, but it's likely because of video acceleration built into these models that's lacking in earlier Macs. But all isn't lost. Squirrel's LLC, and that's not the furry kind of squirrel, but rather the name of the company, offers the $10 Air Parrot that lets you mirror earlier Macs running earlier versions of the Mac OS via an Apple TV. You need to be running Mac OS X 10.6.8, and that's Snow Leopard, or later to use it. I've tried it, and the results are okay. Okay. The image on my Apple TV connected television lacked the clarity of my MacBook's display, but from across the room, the image was tolerable at worst and sometimes pretty good. So if AirPlay mirroring is a feature that you'd hope to have and now find that you can't take advantage of, I suggest that you give the demo of AirParrot a try. It will run for a few minutes before quitting. If it works to your satisfaction, you have a perfectly reasonable mirroring option for not a lot of money. And now a word about our sponsor, Hover.com. Yes, we have a sponsor. And the best thing about this sponsor is it's a service that I actually use. Hover.com is a place for easily registering domain names. About a year ago, I had, was using another domain name registration service. And it was one of those where anytime you wanted to do anything, there are ads all over the place. And there are all these blinking images. And you wanted to change something or renew something or get a new domain. And it was like walking through a maze. Every time you turn the wrong way, they're trying to sell you some new thing. They're trying to get you to pay more for some service. And it turns out that it was really a hassle, and I, and I finally gave up. I wanted to find a service that was much simpler to use. And I looked around, and I asked around, and I got a recommendation from multiple people to try out Hover.com. And indeed, it is as good as they said it was. What's good about it? Well, they have very simple tools. It's very easy to register your domain if you need to re-up. That, too, is really simple. And again, they don't try to sell you anything else when you do it. You get in, you get out, and you're done. They also have a very good help section. So if you're confused about some of the features offered, about how to configure things, check their help section, and it will tell you how to do it. And finally, they have good customer support. If you're really stuck and the online help isn't helping you, give them a call between 9 and 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Somebody will get on the phone, you won't go through a phone tree, and they'll walk you through how to do this stuff. And best of all, you get a discount because you're a Macworld podcast listener. If you want to try out Hover.com, simply go to www.hover.com Macworld and you get a 10% discount. Hover.com, they say it's simple. I can tell you, it is. Packing for vacation. I recently got back from a week's vacation, and when I go on vacation somewhere where I'm not living out of a tent, I tend to drag along a fair amount of technology. So, let's take a look at what's in my travel bag. First, there's my iPad. I have a 32 gigabyte third generation iPad with Wi-Fi plus cellular. I have to say that when it comes time to get my next iPad, I'm likely to drop the cellular option. This and my previous iPad have it, and I have to say, I've taken advantage of it only a couple of times. I'm just not seeing the value in paying an extra $130 for something that I rarely use. Instead, I think I'll rely on my iPhone when I can't find Wi-Fi. Along with the iPad, I bring both the iPad camera connection kit and Apple's $39 digital AV adapter. The former is for loading pictures from my point-and-shoot camera, and the latter is for viewing those pictures, as well as movies and anything else on my iPad, on a nearby HDTV. The digital AV adapter has only an HDMI output, so if you don't encounter TVs with such an input, this isn't an option that's good for you. Rather, you should get the other adapter that has a VGA connector on it. But increasingly, we're seeing HDTVs in motel and hotel rooms, as well as in relatives' homes, so it's a more helpful accessory as time goes along. In the past, if I anticipated doing a lot of typing on my iPad, I carried Apple's wireless keyboard with me, but I've since replaced that with Logitech's $99 ultra-thin keyboard cover. As the name implies, it operates both as a Bluetooth keyboard and a cover for your iPad screen. It does this via a hinge. When you're not using it, you just stick the hinge to the buttonless side of the iPad and fold the cover over the iPad screen. When you're ready to type, you just pull the two parts apart and place the iPad in the magnetized tray that sits above the keyboard. The keys are closer together than on a regular-sized keyboard, so typing takes some getting used to. But after a few minutes, I didn't have a problem with it. In addition to allowing you to type on real versus virtual keys, it has keys for controlling volume, cut, copy, and paste, calling up search, and switching playback on and off. I have colleagues who love this thing and others who find typing on it uncomfortable, so it's not for everyone, but I find it handy. Having a couple of audio cables is also helpful. I usually bring one that has a 3.5mm stereo plug on each end, as well as a Y cable with RCA plugs on one end and that 3.5mm plug on the other. These cables are really handy for plugging your iPhone, iPad, or iPod into a stereo receiver or TV audio input. I'm a subscriber to several music streaming services, and with a cable like this and a compatible audio device to plug into, I need never be without any music I care to listen to. Speaking of listening, if you travel by car and you don't shove a few audiobooks onto your iPhone or iPod, you're missing a bet. This last week, my family drove five hours to our destination, and I hauled along Agatha Christie's Death on the Nile, and this is a Poirot mystery, in audiobook form. We got halfway through it on the drive down, and we finished it on the return trip. I never once heard a, when are we going to get there, complaint from the back seat. It's not a good bet when you have very small children, because their attention span isn't very long. But once they've reached age eight or so, and you've chosen appropriate books, it makes the time fly by. Now, if I'm planning to visit family, I invariably bring a laptop, a spare hard drive, a couple of key drives, and a load of cables, so USB, Ethernet, Firewire, iOS, and so on. Why? Why? Well, probably like you, I'm the family's fix-it guy. They save all their technology problems until I get there, at which point I'm put to work. Save yourself a couple of stressful trips to the Apple Store or Radio Shack and bring along the stuff you need to put their gear in working order. And while you're there, if you have a relative who can never answer you, okay, so what's your administrator password question over the phone, ask them if they'd be willing to share with you their most important passwords. It will make troubleshooting remotely a whole lot easier. You might also set them up with an iChat account so that you can access their Macs using screen sharing. One more tip and I'm out of here. You may have noticed that when you create an iCloud account in OS X's Mail Contacts and Calendars preference, you're prompted only for your Apple ID and password. At the bottom of the configuration window, you see a Create button. But suppose you need to muck around with a specific setting, an IMAP or SMTP setting, for example. That Create button does you no good, because once you press it, that account is automatically set up. But here's the secret. Hold down the Option key, and that Create button changes to read Continue. Click on Continue, and you can then edit the settings to your heart's content. Granted, this isn't something that you should have to do very often, or or ever, perhaps. But it's nice to know the option is there if you need it. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Hover.com, domain names made simple. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 4015 967 3622 This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, macOS, iOS, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you around